Hey everyone, before we begin, we have an announcement. Actually, it's less an announcement than it is an appeal. We've put this off as long as possible, but to keep the show going in its current format, we need some support from, as the NPR people say, listeners like you. To that end, we've set up a show page on Patreon, which is a website where podcast hosts and other kinds of creators can solicit a small monthly stipend from people who enjoy what they do and want them to keep doing it. We'll keep this less obtrusive than an NPR pledge drive, but I want to take a minute to explain why we're asking for your help. Sam and I have never been paid to do this podcast. When we started, going on four years and 850 episodes ago, the show was just something we decided to do on top of our actual jobs. And when I left Baseball Prospectus about 350 episodes ago, I decided to keep doing it because I enjoy talking to Sam and directing with all of you, and because I didn't want to be the bad guy who kills a podcast people like, and also probably because I'm bad at business. It takes a lot of hours to do a daily podcast. It's not just the talking, planning, and scheduling, but also the editing, uploading, and posting. All the boring but necessary behind-the-scenes stuff that happens between me calling Sam and you hearing our conversation is a one-man effort, and that man is me. Over the years, our episodes have gotten a lot longer and our audience has gotten a lot larger, which means that our hosting costs are higher and production takes more time. Our Play Index sponsorship no longer comes close to covering those costs, and while the show sounds much better than it did before, that quality has come at cost to my sanity and sleep schedule. Our goal in asking you to support us on Patreon is to make it feasible for us to preserve the podcast in its current form, to keep it free to download so that anyone can access it, and ideally to do both of those things without subjecting you to the same ads for stamps and audiobooks and daily fantasy leagues that you skip past on other podcasts. We know that not everyone has money to spare on a podcast, but we hope that those of you who do have some disposable income will consider devoting some of your entertainment dollars to us. If you're a regular listener, you're getting a lot of hours out of Effectively Wild. This month, for example, we're doing 24 episodes and producing something like 18 hours of audio. As Sam has often observed, we all talk about baseball to avoid dwelling on our impending deaths, which means that we're giving you 18 hours this month during which you're not contemplating your mortality. We hope that's worth something. So please go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash effectivelywild, and become a patron of the show. You can give as little as a couple dollars a month or as much as the complete contents of your bank account. We've also added a few rewards for higher monthly donations in case the satisfaction of having helped sustain the show isn't incentive enough. It's easy to set up a recurring payment, and it's also easy to cancel in case we get the yips and lose our ability to talk about baseball. A percentage of the revenue generated will go to BP, which pays for hosting and gives us this platform, but the majority of the money you contribute will go to me and Sam so that we can keep doing a daily show while earning enough to eat avocados and dinners at diners in the stupidly expensive metropolitan markets where we've both made the dumb decision to live. Thanks for making it possible for the podcast to survive. And now, please enjoy the episode you were actually hoping to hear. Lessons are always being learned. Lessons are always being burned. Lessons could be our savior. But what's life without the bad behavior? Yeah, we don't care. True stories, and not most. We don't care. Good morning, and welcome to episode 842 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters and the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Howdy. Today, we're talking about the Astros. Later in the show, George Bissell will talk to Jesus Ortiz, who covers the Astros for the Houston Chronicle. We are talking to the author of the BP annual essay, 
on the Astros, who also covers the Astros for the Houston Chronicle, Evan Drellick. Hey, Evan. Hey, guys. So the Astros were good last year. You may have noticed a change in the team you were covering. That <laughs> was that was the big change. Was there any evidence of a slower than usual bounce back in fan interest? Because that was one of the big concerns when they, I don't know if you want to say tanked or didn't try their <laughs> You don't want to say that, Ben, huh? You don't want to take the controversial <laughs> position that the Astros... <laughs> I tried not to win as many games as they perhaps could have for a few years. You, too hot they for you. Too hot for Ben. They didn't give 110% for a few years. I will put it that way. That was one of the main concerns that they were so bad and so unwatchable and so unwatched that it would take longer, that they would erode the fan loyalty and it, and it would take longer to come back. So did it? Well, if you look at the playoff games at Minute Maid, the place was packed, the energy was great, it was full, excited, and you know there are some markets we've seen where in the past not every playoff game has been packed. So that, that was a good sign, right? That at least when the postseason returns after 10 years, you've got everybody there, you've got the building full of energy. I wrote a story late in the year about attendance and how with the Royals going into last year, you hadn't really seen the uptick that you might have expected, and there's, you, there, there can be a delay uh, sometimes about a year uh, before the fans really come back. So this year is going to kind of be the more telling year. You didn't see the attendance in the regular season for the Astros, even as they were uh, in the midst of, of fighting for the West and clearly an improved team, dramatically shoot up. It's not like all of a sudden Astros fever swept over Houston. Now the team was back on TV. Remember that was part one of the reasons that Part of fan interest was kind of a concern as the team was tanking. You also had the games off of TV, and maybe you could argue that was a good thing considering how bad they were. But you had the games back on TV. You had a better team. You had a slight uptick last year. So it, it's not it's not there yet. This year is going to be the interesting year, though. And you didn't. It's not like you guys were flooded with uh, with letters to the editor, like uh, like after the strike of of people just saying like I'm never coming back. Like there weren't people like uh, th- there wasn't like a, a protest contingent or anything like that. I have received emails where people will say, I am not giving Jim Crane a penny of my money. Now, there are people like that probably in every market. I I didn't note that down as something that was exceptional to Houston, uh, although I can't say. I've surveyed the other 29 uh, teams to see how many people uh, shake their fist in in anger at the clouds and at the owner. Um, So maybe there's a couple out there, and and maybe there'll be some people who are a little slower to get back to, to the team. I think that would be to be expected just because they were so irrelevant for a time. And this is a city that's a first football first city to begin with. Although, as everybody has told me, when the Astros are good, when it was 2005, when it was the mid, mid-aughts, uh, you, had, you had real interest in the, you know, if the Texans were one, the Astros were 1A when the, when the Astros are good. So I think there's a higher ceiling here than we've seen reached. And, um, yeah, there probably is a fan or two who, who was turned off by the whole thing, but the, the organization stance the whole time was winning cures everything. And I think sustained winning, that's probably true. I think over time, give, give it a couple of years. If they keep this thing up, who's going to really want to stay off that bandwagon. And the Astros were not only good last year, but also mostly controversy free, at least controversies of their own creation. And I don't know to what extent they made missteps the previous year or, they were just the, the target of unfair sniping by other people in the game. Maybe it was a combination of both. Did the Astros do anything differently? Did they operate in a more enlightened way last year? Or was it just that you know there was a halo effect 
the fact that the team was good made them look good in in all respects? I think there was a halo effect. Everybody from from the top down, from Jeff Luno to AJ Hinch, the fact that the team got a, to such a strong start helped everything, and it, it gave Hinch credibility. Uh, it it just created this dynamic of okay, this is finally working right away. You didn't have to wait till June to see it. You didn't have to wait till July. It was there. I think Hinch made a very big impact, and, and I've written this and I, I've said it. I don't think it was only going downward. I believe it was upwards as well. It, it was a culture change. It was bringing in a, a different perspective to the organization, acting as that go between between the front office and saying, you know, hey, this is maybe how something should be done. Not just going down to the players, but also, I think, going up to the front office or some of that. And it, Look, the Astros did bring upon themselves some of what happened in past years, and there were some things that probably were, were unfair. And uh, I think when you said a combination of both, I think that's the right assessment. I, I don't think it, it was simply that uh, the Astros were victims the entire time of, of bad perception, but certainly there were times when uh, perception probably outgrew the reality of, of the situation or was totally the opposite reality of the situation. So, you know, the, the, the early years of the lunar administration, I, I think are a fascinating subject, but I, I, I got to believe that everybody's happy that now they can focus on, well, how do we keep this thing going? How do we keep winning? And the talk is less about, dang, those guys are really crazy uh, mm-hmm. and all that. So, yeah. And the Astros were fairly active at the deadline last year, but they were not particularly active over the winter. They had already made the Gomez trade, of course, and so that was something they didn't have to do this winter. But I gathered that they were somewhat taken aback by Colby Rasmus's decision to become the first player ever to accept a qualifying offer. To what extent did that dictate the rest of their moves or non-moves over the rest of the offseason? The way I've phrased it is signing Colby Rasmus back or, or having Rasmus accept that offer prevented the Astros from signing another Colby Rasmus. And what I mean by that is it, it took away the opportunity, although Doug Fister might be an example, of a high upside guy out there that they were able to snag for low dollars. And Fister does fit that mold. But the one-year $8 million Colby Rasmus that they signed going into 2015 they couldn't allot that $15.8 million toward a player like that again, right? So, so you're basically, you have a, a market value player. Now, the fans love Rasmus, and the Astros, I, I do think it hampered them because clearly they're still working with a very low payroll and a payroll that's out of line with their market size. And uh, you know whether it should have hampered them, I think, is an, is an interesting question aside from whether it did hamper them. Uh, but yeah, if, if they didn't get, if Rasmus said no to the qualifying offer, I'm sure they would have made a, a different move. Even though nobody had taken an offer before Rasmus had taken it, there were very clear signs, and, and the Astros were aware of this uh, and how much they believed it. I, it. A little hard to tell, but there were clear signs that he was as good a candidate to stay as anybody because of the outfield market, because of his affinity for the South, for Houston. It was kind of a as close to a slam dunk, I think, as you'd find. And you know, the Astros might have looked at it and said, "Well, nobody's ever taken it before. Let's roll the dice." And and it might have been a dice roll they lost. Uh, but if Colby can produce at kind of a, a you know, close to a market value, give them a, a two-win season, right? Uh, it, it's not a bad deal for the Astros, and uh, you know maybe next time around they'll they'll have a little bit more spending room beyond it. And they say they have more spending room beyond it, and maybe they'll add some somebody with a higher payroll as this season progresses. Or I was going to ask you about Fister. Is he the next guy that we're going to be talking about as an example of the Astros' brilliance? Are we going to be reading articles in a few months about how they looked at the spin rate on his 
pitch and it was down and they raised it up again? You know, is there some sort of Astros magic, some sort of flaw that they have perceived and will fix? Or do you expect him to continue on a declining trajectory? So talking to him, what he said was that when about the time he moved to the bullpen last year, he'd started to make mechanical changes. He'd started to feel better. And coming into this winter, coming into the spring with Brent Strom, the pitching coach, he's continued that work. I, I don't know if the Astros necessarily presented him with something that he hadn't thought of at all before. Uh, this is a guy who has been around a while. I didn't get that sense from him that he had arrived and, and you know the clouds had parted and, and you, you heard the, the kind of uh, hallelujah type of music. Uh, when, when he got to Kissimmee. Um, I, I think this has been a buildup. And clearly, with him throwing 90 in his first start and his second start, he did something over the winter. He's, he's gotten himself back in better pitching shape if he's hitting 90 again. That, that's a very, very good sign for the Astros. And I do think that they are the Astros are as equipped as anybody, if not more than anybody, to help a re- reclamation project, right? I, Strom and, and, and all the track man. And, and not only... The, the, the fact that they have all these inputs, but how they apply them, right? That's really the stage we're getting at in, in the game. Everybody can look at the spin rate. Well, what do you do with it is, is the bigger question. So I think Fister is in the right situation, and there's reason to be optimistic so far this spring. And if as far as identifying somebody on the team who could be that next Rasmus, I don't know why there would be somebody else other uh, than Fister we would point to. Uh, he, he looks like the guy to me for sure. Every, I mean, everybody basically knew that the Astros uh, were building toward this window. And one of the things about building toward windows that I think a lot of times when you hear fans especially talk about windows, there's a lot of um, looking at what the other teams in their division are doing. And so, um, you know, like, does it make sense for the Diamondbacks to consider this their window? Well, how good are the Dodgers now? How good are the Giants going to be in two years? How good are the Padres going to be, et cetera? And it's never a given that your window is going to line up perfectly with circumstances. You could, for instance, be the Pirates and have your window be 2013 to 2015. And uh, suddenly there's a team in your division winning exactly one more game than you every year, even though you're the second best team in baseball. So it does, though, seem like the Astros, maybe not by their design or maybe by their design, but they've managed to hit this situation where their window is coming at like the exact right time for everything else in their division. It Over the past decade, I'm eyeballing it, it looks like there's only one year where the AL West has been won by fewer than 94 games uh, before last year. Um, but going forward for the next few years, it's hard to see any of the other teams really being all that good. The Angels are in a bad place. Uh, the Mariners are kind of you know, trying to fix around the margins right now. The A's are in a bad place. And then the Rangers are fine, but they're, you know, they don't look like a powerhouse. The Astros not only have arguably the best major league roster by Pakoda's standards, but they also have the best farm system by baseball perspectives organizational rankings. So they're in a very good spot, not just because they should be winning 90 games, but because winning 90 games ought to be enough to separate them from the rest of their division. So then my question is, uh, do you think that this is, this realization or this reality uh, affects their off seasons right now, because it does sort of surprise me that they got to this point where they consolidated their gains. They got ready to compete. They made the playoffs. Then they go into the off season and you never hear them, for instance, linked to Chris Davis, which would have been a, the sort of thing you would expect a competitive team to be linked to when their worst position is first base. And they've been spending way below budget for years. And when each marginal win might be the difference between the playoffs and not, do you think that they just figure we're at least an 87, 88, 89-win team at the floor for the next few years, and that's plenty, so don't do anything stupid? 
Yeah, the, the one thing they, the Astros can be given credit for is, is avoiding doing anything stupid so far because the most money they've given to one player is $30 million in Scott Feldman in the time that Luno's been here, which, which is kind of amazing if you think about it, right? They, they've operated entirely, or, or at least as much as any team can, to get to this point outside of the, of the free market. They, they've done it through the draft. They've done it through the, the kind of standardized pre-arb years and, 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 and arbitration, which sets up this team to be possibly, uh, you know, and this would require a greater study. Uh, this is just uh, an empirical observation. Uh, it could be the, one of the most cost-effective winning teams ever, particularly in this climate where we have every, all the organizations have such a better understanding of what dollars should translate to on the field. And uh, it, it's, it, it does open up this door uh, to not only have the Astros be good, but good and cheap. And, and from an ownership perspective, man, what more could you want than that? Uh, it is puzzling to me as well that they did have the season they had and then kind of had a status quo winner. And, and the payroll remains low. And part of the Astros thinking is, well, we've got a lot of young players, and these young players are naturally going to get expensive through this arbitration process and, and so on and so forth. And uh, you know, going after the big fish contract, you're, you're putting yourself in position to have a, a bad contract. Uh, and, and I asked Jim Crane about this on the first day of spring training playing off of some comments that Artie Moreno had made about the Angels situation. And, uh, you know, Crane acknowledged that, yeah, you, you do want to avoid having these these contracts, huge contracts around your neck and, and uh, shackling you. That said, I think at some point, unless the Astros can prove that uh, they can be successful without going out there, they probably will have to go out and spend and, and really go out and get a, a big piece at some point. Uh, it, it would be surprising to me if they could – sustained success, which I think has been the whole idea here, right? It wasn't just that the Astros would get back to a winning point. I mean, everybody knew at some point this team was going to have to win, right? No, no team is bad. Uh, well, I shouldn't say no team, but at some point they were going to win. The, the idea was sustained winning, right? And sustain it through the farm and through supplemental big pieces here. And maybe if they really do follow the Cardinals blueprint, you'll have the Matt Holiday type of signing. You'll have a big piece retained. And the biggest test is six years away. It's Carlos Correa. Assuming he stays on the trajectory he's on, do the mid-market Astros have the money and, and the desire to put the money into a guy like that, into a generational type of player, as best we can tell? Uh, and, and, and we'll see. And, and this was something that fascinated me all winter is, is, okay, they're here. Where is this going? And what Jeff Luno said is they will spend eventually. You, you will start to see that. And, and, and to the question about the window, you know, when they went into this, it, it was it, everybody could kind of see. Well, those other teams are good right now, and maybe by the time the Astros get good, the, the other teams won't be as good. It's, I don't think going into it that was part of the reason they went into it, right? I, I don't think they would have sat there and said in 2012 or December of 2011 when Luno was hired, uh, "Well, let's look around and, and let that dictate what we're going to do." I think that's a fortunate byproduct of the situation. I am very curious to see what happens with the Mariners because they still have Felix, they still have Cano. I don't think DePoto has a, has a license to sell, uh, although I haven't been following that nearly as closely as, uh, say, my, my friend Ryan Divish, uh, who covers the Mariners. So I, I don't know exactly, but I, I look, going into last year, we thought the Rangers and the Astros, or when I say we, I, th- I think the general public and media and perhaps prospectus was, was not in this group, but most people were arguing would the Astros and Rangers finish, who would, which of the two would finish last? And now it's which of the two is going to finish first this year? And if there's anything we know is that there's a lot of variance, right? It, you know, anything, this could be an 88-win team, they could finish with 83 wins, and that would be totally expected and, and, and not out of the ordinary to have a five-win fluctuation like that 
Uh, or they could have 93 wins, and that wouldn't be that out of the ordinary either. So, yeah, I think the window helps, and maybe they convince themselves that they didn't have to spend as much this winter, but they're going through this for the first time. And, and, and it might have been a calculated risk. I think everything with the Astros is a calculated risk, but you know, it's a little bit leaves you living by the edge of, uh, of your seat because uh, even if you go back to last season, the decision not to bring up Correa, which, uh, which the team said was in part because they wanted to see him at the upper levels of the minors. Okay, fine. If you're never gonna, if you're ever going to skip a guy over, uh, over AAA, if it's not Carlos Correa, when you have your starting shortstop go down, who is it, right? That, that was kind of the opposing question there. And, and they set themselves up for a situation where if they did not make the playoffs, a lot of second guessing because why did you leave down a talent that came up and then won rookie of the year uh, for, for a month and a half there? Fortunately, they didn't. But, you know, if they this year, again, have a half game game separating them and it's in the other direction, it's, it's harder to sit there and say, well, that was the right choice, right? It, 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 it would leave room in the future to see them give themselves more cushion. And I don't think they've put, give themselves, given themselves a lot of cushion uh, going into this year, which could prove to be a mistake and could prove to be a non-factor entirely. This is the uh, time of year that extensions often get worked out and announced, especially for young players. And I can think of at least four Astros who are either pre-ARB or uh, just reached ARB who would be candidates for the kind of headline grabbing extension. And I don't expect you to scoop yourself or anything like that, but do you have any indication that an announcement might be coming in the next three, four weeks or are all these guys seemingly content to take it a year at a time at this point? I don't have any indication that something is coming. And uh, I mean, heck, isn't half the front office in in your guys' employ? You guys can check for me, can't you? Um, (laughs) And let me know, please, because I'd I'd like to get a heads up on that. Uh, Look, in the same vein of contracts for free agents was the subject I brought up with Jeff Luno. They haven't uh, signed somebody internally. They haven't extended anybody since John Singleton in 2014 in a deal that, look, hasn't worked out uh, well for the team, but the whole point of that deal is that even if it didn't work out badly for the team, it wasn't going to work out. If it, even if it didn't work out well for the team, it wasn't going to work out badly, right? Uh, you know, the, the $2 million a year they've committed to Singleton isn't uh, uh, hampering them uh, greatly, but certainly Singleton's been on the right side of that deal so far. That's So when we hit June, if they haven't signed somebody, that's two years. And you've got Castro, who's a free agent this year with no clear catcher successor and maybe alfredo gonzalez uh becomes that guy maybe bert pena becomes that guy uh those are two kids there there's also tyler heineman and max stassi who just went to the dl but you wonder about what the, what is the future of the astros as a catcher do they like castro walk uh they've tried multiple times with castro to get a long-term deal done they haven't done it they've tried multiple times well, i don't know about multiple times but it, it appears to me that there have been there was talks last summer and i believe there are also talks over this winter as well between Keiko's camp and the Astros. Um, and I know there was, a, there was at some point there significant talks, right? This wasn't just, Hey, do you want to sit down and do this? You know, they, they talked, they had, they uh, investigated what it would take to get it done. So, and, and nothing's gotten done there. And maybe the Astros are smart not to want to lock up Keiko coming off. Probably what will be the best year of his career. Just, just, uh, I think the chances are, are uh, in, in that favor, but also for Keiko, because, He's not going to be a young free agent, right? So you, you're not going to want to necessarily give up free agent years. So we'll see if maybe they get something done with him in the future. He's the next one, and then you start to look to Springer. Uh, and then down the road, you've got a, a guy like Correa. But in the same, at the same time we talk about, well, when are they going to sign a free agent? We also 
uh, do talk about, well, when are they going to lock up these guys? And Jeff Luno says they're going to get it done. It's going to happen. They're going to sign some of these guys. And that includes both internal uh, top talents and external. So I don't know which one the first one will be. Keiko might walk, Castro might walk, and uh, you might leave the fan base scratching your head for a couple of years, and then you give Springer a $200 million deal. We'll see. But it, it's definitely something they're still working on. I think they know that uh, they'll need to lock up some of these guys, and they can't expect to get an Altuve type of deal. They can't expect to get a Singleton type of deal. Certainly, that was a, that was an, a, a rare case that you, you'll find with Singleton. And we'll, you know, they, they haven't kind of got to that midpoint yet, and it, it should happen. So they say coming up. A few years ago, Ari Dickey won a Cy Young Award, and Sam and I played a game of Would You Rather, essentially, where we talked about whether we would rather have Dickey the following season or a bunch of other pretty good starting pitchers. And we took most of the non-Cy Young winners over the actual Cy Young winner, just because Dickey was so anomalous in many respects. And as it turned out, that was probably wise. Would it be fair or correct to play that game with Dallas Keuchel? You know, the fact that he doesn't throw hard or doesn't have an elite strikeout rate do those things make him any less likely than the typical Cy Young winner to have another Cy Young caliber season? Or is that just unfair pitcher profiling? It's probably unfair. I feel bad for Keiko because going into last year, going into 2015, the question was, can he repeat 2014? And going into 2016, it's can he repeat 2015? And it's only harder to repeat what he did in 2015, right? Uh, everybody, I think general public is always, the general public is always going to look at him and say, and have its doubts because of that velocity. And I think probably for us too, and, and, and we could run some numbers on, on and, and maybe you guys have, and I haven't seen it, on whether uh, there's some correlation about being able to repeat as a Cy Young winner to velocity. And, and I, I kind of doubt it, but uh, it would be interesting to know. Keuchel is, is, is anomalous to begin with because he's a sinker ball pitcher who somehow last year transformed him into something of a strikeout pitcher, right? Uh, you, you saw the strikeout rate jump, but I think it was more than one per nine. Um, might have been closer to one and a half per nine. Uh, and you know, he, he's got the back foot slider going better than he ever has. He's, he's been able to pound low and away with the sinker. Uh, he has this wonderful, repeatable delivery. Uh, and, and he talks about how every pitch he throws, every time he's playing catch, everything is done with a purpose. Uh, and one of the things I've talked about with Keiko in the past is, is the hyper-competitiveness. And I always try to hedge this or kind of characterize it by saying every athlete is competitive, right? Nobody gets here without being competitive, but within this realm of competitiveness and, and competitive nature that these guys all have, Keiko's is at the top of that. There, there's something driving him uh, beyond some other people. And uh, that's the only way a guy like him gets to where he's gotten. So I think that is in his corner. And I think his repeatable delivery is in his corner. I think he understands his stuff. If the league can catch up to him, so to speak, if, if perhaps there's a better understanding of what he's trying to do than existed last year, uh, maybe we, we see some aggression or maybe just naturally some aggression anyway. But uh, I think it's very possible we can see somebody in between 2014 and 2015. I, I don't think it's fair to expect anybody who wins a Cy Young to repeat that type of season. But to expect them to fall off the face of the earth, to, to, to kind of have a, a dicky type of downfall that's possible. I, I, I don't think that's fair. I, I, you know, he, he's, he's one of the very best out there. And I just don't know if he can quite live up to what he did last year or if anybody really could. I don't think you can expect that of most pitchers. 
All right. And lastly, just because we can't not have a Carlos Correa question, what's the most reasonable or realistic expectation for him in 2016 alone? Is it that he builds on his rookie year? Is it that he plays at the same level but plays more games? Or is it that he gets even better immediately? I don't think you can win both the American League and National League MVPs in one year, but like if you if you could, he probably would. Um, he should get better. I, I don't know why. If anybody, we could talk about a sophomore slump, and I think this has been disproven to some degree. But uh, if if anybody out there is in position to to kind of take Jeter's mantle to 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 become the, the next face of MLB outside of a Harper and Trout, it, it, it's Correa, and it, it's not. Uh, it, it's not, it's not Ben Grieve. I mean, th- this is, this is a guy who has really worked tremendously hard and, and you can see it, uh, you know, when they drafted him, they didn't know if he would end up being kind of a, uh, not a bad body guy, but if, whether he would follow the Mickey Cabrera route and then end up more of a power hitting third baseman. And he, uh, with a very large frame and at six, four, you know, has, has worked very hard to be able to maintain, uh, his body and be able to to be at shortstop. And, and I, I would kind of challenge people to watch Correa and A, appreciate him, but B, it's not as though this is the most graceful person. This is not the most graceful swing. Uh, he's incredibly quick. He's incredibly athletic. He's very strong. He's powerful. He's very controlled. But he, he, he's not necessarily, and there's beauty in that, but I think when we talk about kind of, you know, a beautiful shortstop or a beautiful play by shortstop. He's not that guy, right? He's not going to make everything look gorgeous, uh, but he will get it done because, because he's worked so hard to kind of put his body in this position. Uh, and I think the work ethic there will help him. You know, he, he, he wasn't perfect the entire way through the season, but how differently we would be talking about game four of that division series, A, if the Astros had won it, uh, well, really, A, if the Astros had won it, uh, B, if he, if he fields that ground ball in the eighth inning when the Royals came back, you know, he had two home runs in that game. And, and at at twenty one years old, he just turned twenty one. It, it, it's it. What he's done so far is remarkable. And I, I remember t- I was talking to Frank Thomas, and you know, Frank Thomas is is by no means the, the judge and jury of anything. But uh, Frank Thomas is at the World Series, and I asked about an A Rod comparison, and and Thomas said, "Well, you know, hold on, I mean, maybe this guy's beyond even A Rod." And we don't know, but I think the the potential is there with him, and the potential. Uh, is as limitless as you'll find with anybody with Correa. So going into this year, I don't know why you wouldn't expect anything but the very best for him and uh, potentially an MVP type of season. All right. Well, we are obligated to ask you for a win total prediction. So tell us how many games you expect the Astros to win in 2016. I have enough memory to know that I've been asked this before, and I've said 90. So Uh for the sake of consistency, I will say 90. Okay. You're on message. All right. You can find Evan's writing at the Houston Chronicle, and you can follow him on Twitter at Evan Drellick. Thank you, Evan. Thanks, guys, as always. All right. So coming up after the break, George will talk to Evan's colleague at the Chronicle, Jesus Ortiz. I'm at a beautiful place full of music, art, and grace that I'm so afraid to face. Settling down is just that. Settling, I'm all about the win Or maybe I just like hearing myself lie It's not the places you've gone Or the places you're going The places you should have went That you want to be known 
Welcome back to Effectively Wild. I'm George Bissell of Baseball Prospectus. Joining me now is Jesus Ortiz. He covers the Astros for the Houston Chronicle. You can follow him on Twitter, at Ortiz Kicks. Jesus, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for the invitation, George. I really appreciate it. Any conversation about the Astros has to start with Carlos Correa who I think it's safe to say wildly exceeded even the most optimistic expectations as a rookie last year. What was it that impressed you the most about Correa as a rookie a season ago, and what are you looking forward to watching with him specifically in 2016? Well, I tell you, you the the most impressive thing about Carlos Correa is just how much respect he garnered from his veteran teammate, Jose Altuve, before he had even been called up declared him the most talented player on the team. But the guy has a great personality and, you know, at 20 years old, and they just absolutely loved and respected him. Even though he was so young, he he had garnered the respect of all his teammates. And then, obviously, then you think of all the baseball talent, you know, the less than 100 games set the franchise record, rookie record for home runs with 22, you know, batting third in the lineup during the playoffs, you know, joining Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mama as the only guy 21 years old or younger to bat third in the playoffs. That's whenever you're, you're mentioned along those guys in that exclusive company, you're doing something right. Yeah, there's almost no historical comps for a guy like Correa other than maybe Mike Trout. I mean, when you really look at things uh, recently. So when you look at where the Astros are now, as opposed to a few seasons ago, do you believe that the model they use to reload the minor league system will become the standard issue, so to speak, for teams that are going to undergo a, a complete teardown and rebuild in the future? Or were the Astros such an extreme case that we may never see it done to that extent ever again? I don't know. I don't know that anybody would have the guts to do what the Astros did. Mm-hmm. And sort of, Houston's the kind of city, it's a football town, where the, the fan base, yeah, they, they stopped showing up, but they really didn't, you know, like you couldn't pull this off in New York. Philadelphia can't do it. There are very few cities that would have accepted this, and I think Houston is, you know, can you think of another one besides Houston that could put up with this? And, and also another thing to consider, will the union ever let somebody do this drastic of a teardown? Mm-hmm. I don't know that the union will, and Major League Baseball will allow it. So- that's a yeah, you're right. I don't think we're gonna see that again. Um, so when you look ahead to the 2016 Astros, how much of their success hinges on the health of outfielders George Springer and Carlos Gomez, both of whom struggled to stay healthy last season? I think that'll be the key to this season. They need to keep George Springer healthy. If George Springer can stay healthy for a whole season, I think he's a 30-30 guy, 30 home runs, 30 stolen bases. Gomez, they're gonna need him to be healthy. All, you know, and yeah, a lot depends on them. Defensively, they have Jake Marisnik who could step in for either one of those. But offensively, I don't think there's anybody who could duplicate what George Springer can give. But yeah, they need those guys to remain healthy. It'll be vitally important. When you look at the Astros offense, the catalyst is obviously Jose Altuve. Is he one of the most unique players you've ever covered? And what is it about Altuve, in your opinion, that sets him apart from uh, pretty much anyone else in the game, given his size and just how productive he's been over the last few seasons? Well, I'll tell you what. Nobody in franchise history, not even 3,000 hit man Craig Biggio, 
has had as many hits at this early of a stage after than Jose Altuve. Yeah. Nobody in franchise history has had multiple 200-hit seasons. Altuve's done it the last two seasons. The guy just gets hit, and he's looking great again in spring training. He's a professional hitter. He, yeah, he doesn't have... He's not going to wow you with power, mm. uh, but he gets it done. He, he has special ability to just continually get on base and, you know... I don't. I don't know that there's anybody as good as Altuve at getting more out of their, you know, pound for pound. Yeah, I think you, you summed it up there. Professional and consistent. That's uh, that's really the two keys with Altuve. But can you describe the experience of watching Dallas Keuchel? from start to start because for me it feels like I'm watching someone who's you know just a skilled woodworker the precision in which they go about their craft I think it's just incredible how much Keuchel's evolved and can you describe what it's like watching him from start to start just how good he is he's he's masterful you know he's the left-handed pragmatics he does everything right mm -hmm. he fills the position you know two-time gold glove winner he throws strikes he doesn't wow you with his fastball, but he gets strikes. He's a pitcher. He's he's the perfect example of what the position is about. He's a pitcher. He knows how to get guys to get themselves out. And, you know, nobody in the majors the last two years does a better job of helping himself defensively on the mound. So, yeah, he does everything very well. He's very, very competitive. He wants to be the best pitcher in the major league. You know, everybody says they want it, but this guy has that kind of chip on his shoulder. Like he wants to prove people wrong, and and uh, and I think he, you know, I enjoy watching him pitch. He also has the best beard in baseball. I don't think that's even a debate. <laughs> it's it's something right. else. And the funny thing is, he might not even have the best beard in Houston. Who has the better one? Is it Gaddis? I'm trying to think. James Harden. Oh, James. <laughs> you went cross sports on me. I didn't see that coming. That was, that was, that was good. I like that. How big of an impact does the shoulder injury to 22 year old right hander Lance McCullers, who really was stellar as a rookie last year? How big of an impact could that potentially have on the Astros rotation? Because uh, that seems to be right now the biggest injury storyline this spring for the team. Well, I tell you, that's, that's the biggest concern so far. You, you go from having depth with Fister and Feldman and Fires fighting for the final two spots in the starting rotation to suddenly having to depend on Feldman, Fister, and Fires to, you know, handle the back end of the rotation. And, you know, Lance McCullers is a very special young man, the, the best young Astros pitcher since Roy Oswald was a rookie in 2001. Mm -hmm. you know, he hasn't thrown in a, in a game. He's shut down now. He probably will miss the first month of the season. And that's, that's not something that you'd want. You know, it, he, was, he was expected to be an anchor in this rotation, and now he's not part of it. So until he comes back, it's going to be a very scary question mark for the Astros because he is truly special. 
it certainly sounds like it's going to test their rotation depth, uh, at least early on in the season until he's able to get back. How do you see the Astros handling the ninth inning this year? They acquired Ken Giles, who's been one of the best relievers in the game over the past two years. And they also have incumbent veteran Luke Gregerson, who excelled in the role last year and seems at least rather reluctant to give that up so far. How do you see the ninth inning shaking out for Houston? Well, I, you know, A.J. Hinch has, has really been hesitant about declaring a closer yet. Uh, it's a very sensitive situation here. But let's be honest, you know, you at baseball perspective know the, <laughs> the better than anybody in baseball. You don't give up such talent, so many talented arms for mm-hmm. a setup match. You yeah. just don't. Right. So that. That, you know, they could pretend like it's a competition or they could pretend that they are not sure. But you don't give up Mark Appel and Vince Velasquez and Brett Overholzer and Echelon for a setup match. You just do not. You do not give up the first round pick in the 2013 draft. Another rookie starter who was really good last year, who may be better than, you know, eventually than Appel and, and maybe the McCullers. Uh, and that doesn't mean, and then you can consider Overholzer or Alshaman or the other guys that they gave up for a setup, man. You just do not, you can't make me believe that they gave up all that for a guy they expected to be a setup, man. Do you? No, I'm in the same camp as you. I think, I think it's Giles all the way. I just, I think they don't want to lose Gregerson from, from a, a confidence standpoint. Cause it is hard to demote someone from a role like that, I think. Does that have an impact on clubhouse chemistry at all? Do you think Gregerson's, you know, he's a veteran. He's been around the game a long time. Do you think it's not going to be a big deal if they do decide to go with Giles? Well, that, that's the thing. We don't know. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they haven't made an announcement makes it clear. I mean, Gregerson's a very respected player on that bullpen, and that bullpen was very close last year. Chad Falls is not around to kind of, like, serve as that veteran guy to rally everybody together. So, yeah, I don't know. It remains to be seen, and, and I think you have to appreciate Luke Gregerson's desire to still be the closer. He, he makes a good point that he didn't do anything to lose the job. Yeah, exactly. If anything, he was the best closer when the bullpen imploded in September and and in the playoffs. You know, he picked up the flag of the best reliever, I should say. So it, it would be rather ironic and somewhat sad that the only guy who truly did not flop in September of the playoffs would be the guy who would lose his job. How long are they going to stick with John Singleton at first base? Because they have A.J. Reed. He led the minor leagues in home runs last year. A highly touted prospect. He's looked good this spring. How long do you see them staying with Singleton at first base? And, and how does this ultimately shake out? And is that really the, the, the situation to watch early on in the year with the Astros? You know, that, that's, what's, that's going to be the thing to watch this year early on. You know, John Singleton signed that $10 million deal. Uh, five year, 10 million or whatever. And, you know, he still has three seasons. This one and two more after this. They're, you know, he's going to make two million this year. They've invested in him and need to find out what he can do. So therefore, he has, you know, he has a leg up. They owe it to themselves and they owe it to him to see what he could do at the start of, you know, and, you know, as we do this interview, 
he went two for four with two home runs. I mean, it was what? It was three RBIs, a two-run double, and a home run. And he lifted his batting average from 103 to 152. Uh, and 152 is ugly, but when you compare it to 103, it's better. <laughs> but I think as long as he shows some signs the rest of the way in spring training, you have to give him the job. Because A.J. Reed still needs to work on hitting uh, left-handers, left-handed pitching curveballs. Um, there's still some room for growth in the minor leagues for A.J. Reed. Tyler White's had a great camp so far. So that's going to be the big question. Um, you know, will Tyler White eventually edge out Singleton? But also keep in mind, there's a chance that that Evan Gaddis, the designated hitter, is not ready for opening day. So then you have two spots. You have Singleton, and then you, you could try to get in Tyler White. You could try to get in Matt Duffy. You could try to get A.J. Reed. There are options, and if the young guys completely fail, Marlon Gonzalez, who's been the hottest hitter this spring and who has played first base in the past, yeah. could take over that position for a while in an emergency. Um, but, yeah, they need to find a first baseman. And I guess best-case scenario for the Astros, Singleton shows that he can play in the majors. A.J. Lee gets a little bit more time in the minors to, to kind of grow and the Astros don't look silly for giving Singleton that contract that, you know, Bud Norris, who loves to run his mouth, and other major league players ridiculed. And, you know, if you remember, John Singleton was ridiculed for taking the, the offer before he'd ever played an inning in the majors. That was a pretty, in that decision on his part, is looking pretty darn good. <laughs> That's true, but no shortage of options uh, for the Astros there on that roster heading into the year. Uh, I want to get your take on who's a player who's flying under the radar right now, but you think is going to have a major impact with the Astros this year. John Dale Mustave. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about him. He's a, a pitcher, I believe, correct? Yeah, he's a, he throws 99 miles per hour, and this is all you need to know about him. <laughs> the, the kid has looked really good. He's not giving up an earned run this spring. He took a comebacker off the forearm from Bryce Harper, remained in the, in the game early in camp, and got a scoreless inning. And he's tough. He's really open-eyed this, this spring. And I'm just going to throw this out there, and you could call me in, in June or October, but I would not be surprised if they remain healthy. If Ken Giles is your closer. Mm-hmm. Mustave is your setup man, and Gregerson is your seventh inning guy. Wow, I, that'd be impressive. The dude is real. I mean, he—you can't have too many guys who throw 99 miles per hour consistently. You just can't. You heard it here first, Jandel Gustave. He's gonna—he's gonna be fun to watch this year. My last question for you, Jesus, and then we'll let you get out of here. Uh, what's the most compelling player or storyline that you're looking forward to covering with the Astros in 2016? Now, I'm assuming it's Carlos Correa, but who's who's the player or story that you're watching the most this year? Well, I'd be lying to you if, if Carlos Carroll was the person that we're watching the most. I think this is a once-in-a-generation player, and I truly believe that he's the next great thing in baseball. He might even be MVP this year. So, yeah, let's go with Carlos Carroll. Jesus, thanks once again for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. 
It's an honor to be invited. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Thank you. So that's going to do it for our conversation with Jesus Ortiz on this All Houston Chronicle podcast. You can check out his Astros coverage all season long in the Houston Chronicle. You can also follow him on Twitter at Ortiz Kicks. And now we're going to send it back over to Ben Lindbergh to wrap things up. All right. So that's it for the Astros preview. Thank you to Evan and Jesus for coming on. All the music on today's show was provided by Bonnet, which is a Texas-based band composed of three Astros fans one of whom, Samuel, is a longtime Effectively Wild listener, as well as a drummer and songwriter. All three songs come from Bonnet's debut EP, LP Issues, which you can find on Bandcamp as well as Spotify and iTunes and Google Play. If you are a listener in a band and you think that some of your music might suit our show, please let me know. You can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Today's Patreon supporters to thank Joe Kaminsky, Eric Blasco, Melissa Scroggs, Craig and Lou. Thank you all. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and rate and review the show on iTunes. You can buy our book. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, and it's the story of how Sam and I ran the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league team last summer. Comes out May 3rd, but you can pre-order it now at Amazon or Barnes and Noble. You can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code PP. Normally, this is where I would wish you a wonderful weekend and tell you that we'll talk to you on Monday. And we will talk to you on Monday with the Washington Nationals preview. But it looks like we will have a bonus Saturday episode of Effectively Wild talking to Cole Figueroa, who is a player in Pirates Camp having an excellent spring but is also a baseball analysis nerd, just like us. So we're going to talk to him about baseball and also some of his extracurricular activities. Should be fun. Therefore, we will be back tomorrow. Cause now that I've got so long-